This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. My name is John Schaefer and I'm here today with Freddie Late, founder of Latitude Investment. Freddie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Your Horizon flagship's often lumped into the absolute return peer group. Um, and you know, with that defensive ethos in mind, why have you still made a sort of negative return this year? So the fund's down sort of one or two percent this year at the moment. There's a bit of a confusion sometimes about the sort of terminology for absolute return. You know, no one can guarantee positive returns every year. It's really about trying to generate returns ahead of inflation in as smooth a way as possible. And so being multi-asset class, being diversified helps in that journey. And, you know, we think in a world where bonds and equities have suffered probably their worst joint route since sort of the 1950s or something, um, being down one or two is okay and acceptable. We're not forgiving it, we don't like losing money, but likewise we've never set out to guarantee every calendar year to make positive returns. Obviously you mentioned inflation there, making a one or two percent nominal loss is more serious under the inflationary conditions we've been having more recently. What would you have done differently to make a positive return? Well it was quite hard this year. Um, you know, bonds have fallen a lot in general, um, and unless you were trading an enormous amount, you know, year-to-date numbers for, for bond and stock markets are pretty poor. On the inflation point, since we launched six years ago, inflation's up a cumulative 20% or so, and we're up about 40 So a meaningful outperformance over a six-year period. The sector, as far as I can tell, is up around 10 so lagging that by 50%. Um, and I think it splits in two ways, the sector. The way we like to think about it is the sort of more fundamental fund managers, you know, rougher, Troy, Latitude, funds like that, who are investing in individual stocks and bonds, and then the more quantitative fund managers. And there tends to have been a bifurcation where the fundamental managers have managed to outperform inflation over the long term, but the quantitative ones have suffered more. The strategy is long only. Would you consider adding short positions to the strategy? No, we've made a conscious decision not to invest, um, <clears throat> not to use shorts or to use uh, put options or anything like that. Um, in my past careers, I have done, I've worked at a hedge fund for seven years and at Goldman Sachs. We were quite prolific users of, of option strategies. What should you be doing with your non-equity positions is the question. We're big believers in single stocks. What you do on the other side to protect your portfolio. Everything we buy, we believe will make a positive expected contribution to the fund. Some won't, but that's our ambition. With shorting, unless your timing is exactly on, and we don't believe market timing is actually possible, you're going to lose money through time. You may lower your risk, but you're certainly going to lower your return. And in a, in a sector where returns are relatively modest anyway, you know, six, seven percent is sector leading, sacrificing one, two or three percent on option premium or shorting can be very costly to compounding returns. What positions have you dropped this year? In the non-equity portfolio, we had a very defensive portfolio coming into the year. So it was pretty much all invested in very short dated US inflation linked bonds, tips. So we've been adding on that side. So in the mini budget, we took advantage of the uh, dislocation and started buying some UK inflation-linked gilts. And more recently, we've been adding to some longer-dated US tips as well. In the non-equity side, the the trade we've made this year really was um, exiting our position Novo Nordisk, which was it is an insulin manufacturer. It's a fantastic business. It's grown earnings per share 15% a year for the last 20 years, but it's trading on around 40 times trailing earnings. It's got expensive due to great performance. And we replaced that with a business called McKesson, 
which is one of three uh, US drug distribution companies. Similar end demand, similar end sectors, uh, both in healthcare, uh, also grown 15, 16% a year for the last 20 years, a very high quality oligopoly in the US, but trading on 15 times, admittedly, next year's earnings versus Novo's 30 times next year's. Do you have a threshold for, for earnings multiples? No, we don't, but the way we think about things is there's no fair price for any stock. Everything's relative. Everything's a relative game and how much growth and you know, how, for how long can I get at what price? And so in these two businesses, we believe they're going to grow similarly over the next 10 years and one's half the price to the other. That's a meaningful enough disconnect for us to think that's an advantage to our shareholders. Your top holding is uh, US discount store Dollar Tree. Yeah. Why are you so bullish on that stock? We broadly equal weight our stocks and then the winners end up towards the tops and the losers end up towards the bottom. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's our favorite stock. Uh, we love all our, all our children equally. But it's grown nicely. I mean, I've owned that stock actually since 2009 and it's grown earnings at around 15, 16% per year over that period. And it has a particular story going on at the moment, which is that it has two brands. Fa uh, Family Dollar is an underperforming brand and Dollar Tree is performing very well. And they've hired in an excellent CEO to manage the family dollar business. And we believe that while Dollar Tree will continue to perform strongly, especially in the cost of living crisis that we're likely to see in the next 18 months, that will help lift family dollar too. And a lot of the plans put in place there could take margins up from 2 3% all the way towards 8 or 9%. So this is your sort of recession beating stock? It's one of them. What else is there? AutoZone. Uh, is doing very well. It's another stock I've owned for about 13 years um, and it's compounded more like 20% uh, earnings over that period, indeed over the last 20 years. Um, and it's an auto part retailer, a little bit like Halfords. They're just very recession-proof businesses. In recessions, people tend to run old cars longer, work on their cars rather than buying a new one, uh, and people often drive more. You seem quite US biased in your equity allocation. Is that where the best opportunities are in 2023? It's certainly been where the best opportunities have been for the last decade. You know, the, the US market has outperformed uh, all other regional markets and become a much larger share of the, the world markets. The US market in general is quite expensive now. It's probably more expensive on average than the rest of our portfolio. Our portfolio trades on around 12 times PE and I guess our US stocks are more like 15 times. But some of the more cyclical in interesting investments that we found, um, some energy companies, some infrastructure stocks, which actually we believe aren't that cyclical, trading on sort of six, seven, eight times earnings, they're found in Europe. So maybe there's a little bit of sort of value and cyclicality coming from the European markets while some more defensive growth from US. Could you explain your split between equities and bonds in the portfolio and, and how it's changed over the past 12 months? Our equity position is around 50% and it's always around 50%, somewhere between 40 and 60. And this is a really major differentiator for us. A lot of people try to time the markets, and we don't believe it's possible to do that repeatedly over a 30-year span. And where you end up trying, you often end up underperforming structurally, getting too bearish and unable to buy back in. We don't try to move that around too much. 40 to 60 is enough of a range for us, <clears throat> and it's a little bit under 50 at the moment. The non-equity positions, there's no set framework for. We can invest opportunistically wherever we like, but it's all very liquid. It's bonds, currencies, commodities. We don't own any gold at the moment, but we could have gold. Why no gold at the, at the moment? We've owned it twice in the last six, seven years. Gold trades very similarly to uh, real yields in America. So this, it sort of performs quite similarly to tips, inflation-linked bonds. And you can put together a quite simple kind of relative value framework to say when you would prefer to take the yield that tips are offering and when you prefer to own gold. And broadly speaking, as real yields and nominal yields are rising, so if you buy a 10-year US tips, you're making 
one to one and a half percent real yield they're jumping around at the moment but something like that so that's above inflation and a nominal yield of sort of four four and a half percent that's risen a lot from negative levels quite recently and that makes the tips relatively more attractive compared to the zero income of gold are tips the best way to play fixed income at the moment inflation linked bonds do appear to be um, there are there's a very liquid market in the uk um, although maybe i'll come back to that uh, there's a very liquid market in the us and then there are some german italian uh, even some, a couple of Swedish uh, inflation-linked bonds and a few inflation-linked corporate bonds. So I do think inflation-linked bonds are offering really quite attractive yields at the moment. But on the liquidity point, there is very, very limited liquidity in these things. Um, you know, we asked three brokers yesterday for a quote in some US tips and we were buying $10, $20 million worth. One wouldn't quote. One quoted about 2.5% away from the screen price and one finally did the trade. When we were trading around the time of the UK budget announcement, Quasi Quarteng's budget announcement, there was no liquidity. We couldn't trade for days. And we're a small fund relative to others. I think there's going to be further dislocations in the fixed income market. So you have to be aware that if you are investing in these things, you, you, know, you may not get the price you want if you want to exit. You've got several SIN stocks um, in your strategy. You've got BP, Imperial Brands. Where does an ESG integration sit in your fund? We've been quite wary about, um, you know, potentially greenwashing the business. We've done a lot of work on it in the past. You know, we do a lot of deep analysis on these stocks and integrate these sort of factors on both a risk and a potential. Um, you know, the energy transition gives you potential. If you're investing in BP, it's likely you'll see a derating, for example, so there's a risk. We don't believe that there's a sort of central arbiter of of ESG criteria that we can trust. It's amazing, actually, how many fundamental analysts who would never outsource any other part of their investment process are so willing to surrogate ESG analysis to a series of scoring from sustainalytics or things like that. How about tobacco, though? It's, it's a bit of a, a, a difficult one to, uh, to square, isn't it? To square in a sense, but I mean, I think this transition to NGPs, as they call them, next generation products, whether that's vaping or schnooze packets or things like that, they're a very, very good innovation. They are driving a lot of a lot lower harm. In, in fact, you know, a lot of the vaping comp uh, companies that are independent are doing work saying it's almost zero harm. Uh, it's just nicotine, really. But it satiates the human need for it. There's still a lot of smokers that need to transition to that in order to have a healthier lifestyle, and no one else is really investing in it but the tobacco companies. Your newer global equity fund has been a bit of a better performer over the past year. Why has there been such a, a void between the two strategies? So the global equity fund's done very well this year. It's up four or five percent, which is quite rare in a sea of red. The Horizon Fund's equities are the same as the Global Equity Fund. So it's sort of 50% invested in the same strategy. The reason it's done better is actually quite simple. Because we're investing in global businesses, 80 or 90% of our exposure is in non-sterling assets. And that's been a great benefit because sterling's fallen so much this year. Whereas in the Horizon Fund, as part of our sort of mantra of not concentrating risks or taking big macro risks, we, we have a maximum limit of 30% foreign currency exposure. So you're not too exposed to wild swings in sterling. And that's really the difference. So being defensive hasn't been the... Being defensive hasn't helped in that sense. But it's a, it's a policy we think, again, through cycle will stand us in good stead. It's helped us in the past. Um, but no, this year it hasn't helped particularly. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.